This is Lecture 2 of Joseph Goldstein's course on Essential Buddhism taught at the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado on July 18, 1974. Sense awareness at all. The mind is completely one-pointed with the object. Out of that strength of mind can come powers, can come very expanded universal consciousness type things still very much on the wheel, right? The wheel of life and death and rebirth because the defilements of mind have not been eradicated. They haven't been cleansed. While you're in samadhi, the mind is pure, but the, the unwholesome states are suppressed, right? By the power of the one-pointedness. As soon as you come out of the one-pointedness, again, there's greed and anger and desire because they haven't been examined. If your mind, the, I don't know, of course, whom they're talking about in their states of mind, but if you're mindful moment to moment, the memory factor gets much stronger because you're fully conscious of what's happening. Rather than devoting half your attention, you know, if you're fully, if you're fully there, that that imprint is going to be strong. present we're, we're just doing the breathing, right? Like le last time's instructions, or the rising falling. So for now, if the pain starts to interfere, just change position. All the time watching the rising falling. We're going to get into observing pain, but we'll do that in due course. You can't. You can't. The, the mind has one object at a time. activated when the mind gets still and quiet and, and very mindful. Um, energy too is a mental factor, which means that it's part of the impermanent flow. So there's nothing to hold on to there. It, it's a very energetic state, which feels good after our usual sleepiness, you know, our usual sloth. So when the body gets very activated with this energy, it's, it's quite blissful. It's also not the end. You know, that energy is to be used to develop balance rather than clinging to that. It's to let go of everything. Right? <coughs> Mount Analog is a book about the spiritual journey. And the form the book takes is about a journey to a mountain. And the story very much involves about all the preparations and the difficulties 
in reaching the mountain, in finding, in finding it, reaching the base, and then in the ascent to the top. Mount Analog is a very interesting mountain. It has its base on the earth. It has its base just where we are. The peak, the summit, is the very height of spiritual attainment. The peak of the mountain is spiritual enlightenment, freedom, illumination. The mountain is very large. It is said to be larger than any known mountain on earth, covering a huge expanse of space, and much higher than any mountain on earth. One of the problems the voyagers had who were, who were searching for this, for this mountain was that it is invisible. So they had, they had some difficulty in locating it because it was not, it was not apparent to our normal vision. <laughs> this huge mountain, bigger than Mount Everest, higher than Mount Everest, based on the earth and normally invisible. The height of, the peak of which is the, is the height of of all spiritual evolution. So we are on that same journey, trying to find, trying to find this Mount Analog and to make the ascent, to climb it. The reason the mountain is invisible is that it is not outside of ourselves. So that as long as we are looking outside, externally, we will never be able to find it. It will remain invisible to our eyes. The mountain is within, and it takes, it takes an inward looking, both to find it and to begin the climb. And as soon as we turn our sight inwards, there lies Mount Analog with its base right where we are here and now, and at its peak reaching, reaching full enlightenment, freedom, illumination. The book, the story of it, is about these people who finally do, do reach the base camp of the mountain. They find the, the mountain within themselves. And part of the story deals with their preparations and beginning, beginning to climb, beginning the climbing of it. And on the mountain there are guides at different places, and the guides help them up the mountain and prepare them for the, for the voyage, for the journey they have to make in the spiritual ascent. It is exactly the same way with the journey we take within ourselves. As soon as we realize that Mount Analog is within rather than without, as soon as we realize that the journey we have to make comes from a self-observation, an observation of what's happening in our mind and body, 
and not in the accumulation of external experiences or situations. As soon as we turn inwards, we find that there are very many people who have already made the journey or part of the journey, who serve as guides to the rest of us in, in climbing up this mountain, in walking the path towards enlightenment, towards freedom. The Buddha was one such person who, who had made the total ascent, who had reached the very peak of full and complete enlightenment. And he served as a very excellent guide for all those people who were trying to find and follow the path up the mountain. For those who have made it to the top already, the path is very simple and very clear. And in their teachings, they have, they have made a map of this path to the top of the mountain, which reveals the clarity, which reveals the, the simplicity of the walk up to the top. It is not a confused, jumbled maze of, of intertwining paths. There is a very direct path from, from the base of the mountain, which is where we are, to the, to the peak, which is, which is enlightenment, or freedom, or peace, or silence of mind. The path is very well marked, and it has been walked upon by very many people. So once we know the path, and when we meet some guides who can point it out to us, it becomes relatively simple. All we have to do is walk. And we walk, and we walk, and we walk, and we climb higher and higher until we reach the top. One map, which is a very clear expression of the path up the mountain, is known as the Eightfold Path. And all the different aspects of this Eightfold Path are signposts or indications of where we have to go, what we have to develop in order to, in order to reach the peak of the mountain, in order to reach a state of freedom. The first factor on the path is called Right Understanding. And right understanding is the wisdom factor of mind. And there are two levels to this, to this wisdom, to this understanding. One is the, the mundane understanding of how the laws which affect our lives are working. How to harmonize best in our daily lives. The other kind of understanding is that of ultimate truth, those truths which directly lead to freedom, to enlightenment. As an example of, of the mundane wisdom is the understanding of karma, the law of karma and how it's working. Karma means action. 
and that every action we do has a certain effect. And it is said that truly the only possession we have which goes, which goes with us continually is our accumulation of karma. It's these karmic activities <coughs> which we have gathered in the course of many lifetimes that are our only true possession in that they follow from life to life to life determining, determining the situations we find ourselves in. Understanding how karma works is a very powerful force in get a, getting us into harmony with what's happening. And it's very simple. When we do actions with a wholesome mind, happiness comes back to us. When we do actions with an unwholesome mind, unhappiness comes back to us. Cause and effect, cause and effect. What does wholesome and unwholesome mean? There are three roots of all unwholesome states of mind, and they are greed and hatred and delusion. And whenever we act motivated by any one of those three things, greed is clinging, hatred is condemning, delusion is forgetfulness. Whenever we act motivated by one of those three roots, the karmic result is pain and suffering. No one up in the sky who is meeting out justice. It is all the expression of a natural law expressing a rhythm of the mind. Greed, hatred, and delusion bring back pain. Non-greed, generosity. Non-hatred, which is love. Non-delusion, which is wisdom and mindfulness. They bring back happy happiness to us. Understanding how this law of karma is working and affecting us, we can begin to cultivate those wholesome roots of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, and get in tune with all the forces of happiness which are, which are operating in the world. Happiness both on the mundane level, and also that, those kinds of happiness which, which bring us closer to enlightenment. Okay, right understanding very much involves this understanding of karma and how it's working. Part of that understanding also involves the, the knowledge or the, the knowledge of the benefit of giving. In all the, in all the um, scriptures, in all the texts, all the discourses of the Buddha, there is very much emphasis placed on giving, right? generosity. Not only does the act of giving bring back very beneficial results, it's the karmic cause of much happiness. It is the cultivation of non-greed. And it is it is the greed factor of mind which is the principal one involved in our continual revolution on this wheel of samsara. Desire, grasping, clinging, the greed factor of mind. So every act of giving is the cultivation of that, 
of that state of non-greed, which is deconditioning us from, from clinging to the wheel. So giving plays a very important part in our, in our ascent up this mountain. Another very interesting part of right understanding, which is not dealt with very successfully by many Westerners, is the very special responsibility we have to our parents. There is a very strong karmic link between parents and children. And the Buddha has said that, in fact, there is no possible way to repay the debt that we owe to our parents. For the, for the care and the help that they gave to us when we were unable to care for ourselves, there is a very great responsibility which we have towards them. And in, in Western culture, the, the whole emphasis has been on becoming psychologically free of our parents, which is a very useful, beneficial state to, to cultivate. But we should balance that with the understanding that with that freedom, we have a great responsibility. <coughs> and in fact, what the Buddha said is that the only possible way of repaying the debt to our parents is to try to help get them established in the path of Dhamma. To, to plant seeds, to, to help them as much as possible understand the law, understand themselves. So that's one aspect of right understanding which is very um, <coughs> important to deal with for us. And it's interesting that of the many people who came to India to practice the meditation, those who had established a very good working relationship with their parents were very much more free of a of this subtle psychological depression which comes when, when we do not, when we have not dealt successfully with, with this responsibility to our parents. It weighs heavily on our minds whether we're aware of it or not. So it's an issue that should be dealt with as openly and as honestly as possible, with a lot of love and with a great feeling of the responsibility we have. Okay, that's the, the mundane aspect of right understanding. How to deal in the world and the, the forces that are affecting us. The higher wisdom aspect of right understanding is the knowledge of the three characteristics of existence. Right? Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, non-self which we talked about last time. And this kind of understanding comes through more and more meditation practice. We begin to develop insight into these three characteristics. 
everything is arising and passing away. Momentarily coming into being and vanishing, nothing to hold on to. Because of this flow of impermanence, inherently these conditioned phenomena are unsatisfactory because they are not lasting. There's no possibility of a lasting happiness in them because they're vanishing as soon as they arise. And they are all empty of self. Shunyata, emptiness. On one important level, what that emptiness means is not that they are not there, but that they are empty of self, of anyone behind them. Existence is a flow of impersonal phenomena. Empty phenomena rolling on. Understanding, integrating this wisdom or this insight into the three characteristics is all part of this first factor on the path of right understanding. In Mount Analog, there is one, one paragraph which expresses very beautifully what it means to experience this flow of impermanence and the proper course of action to, to take when that insight is realized. It says, never halt on a shifting slope. <coughs> Even if you think you have a firm foothold, as you take time to catch your breath and have a look at the sky, the ground will settle little by little under your weight. The gravel will begin to slip imperceptibly, and suddenly it will drop away under you and launch you like a ship. The mountain is always watching for a chance to give you a spill. Our existence, our very being, is a shifting slope. There is nothing to hold on to. Everything is falling away, falling away. Whenever there is any moment of trying to hold on to anything, that moment of clinging is going to be the cause of suffering. Because the whole mountain is going to start slipping away under our feet. And the only way to harmonize with that flow, with that shifting slope, is to let go completely. Not to try to cling or grasp at or be attached to anything. Right understanding. It's the first factor on the Eightfold Path. The second factor is right thought. And right thought means thoughts which are free of sense desire, thoughts which are free of ill will, thoughts which are free of cruelty. As long as those kinds of thoughts are predominant in the mind, it is impossible to make this ascent up the mountain. All those kinds of thoughts of sense desire and ill will and cruelty are great dragging forces which keep us down. So we must cultivate thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of loving-kindness, 
thoughts of harmlessness or compassion. They are very liberating for the mind, very freeing for the mind. Renunciation does not mean suppression. It does not mean the pushing down of desire. Not, not allowing the mind to look at it. Renunciation means letting go. Having things arise in the mind and letting go of them. In that letting go, there is no tension, no repression, no suppression. There is tremendous lightness of mind in letting go. That's what renunciation means. And one example of how easily misunderstood that state of mind is from the outside <coughs> was seen very clearly when visitors used to come to the place we were staying at in India, which was a very subsistence level type of place. Very little, very little material things were there. Very few material things. And people used to come, maybe tourists or travelers, just passing through for a couple of days. And we just wonder at the great renunciation that we had all undertaken and how we could live like that. And they were seeing it from the outside. Being free of a lot of external possessions is a delight. It just lightens one's, one's whole way of living in that simplicity. So in fact, it's not that, that people are involved in this great, this great yogi renunciation, but in fact have found a much freer, much more beautiful way of living. In the course of the meditation, as the experience of what letting go means, and also in one's external life situation, there comes, there comes a real feeling for the beauty and the, and the freedom of letting go of things, of not holding on, of not accumulating. Right thought, thoughts free of desire, free of ill will, free of cruelty, the cultivation of renunciation, of loving-kindness, of compassion. That kind of thought development puts us into a very great harmony with everything around us. A very true relationship begins to, begins to be established between ourselves and all other beings. The third factor on the path is right speech. And right speech means speech which is free of lying, of slander, of gossip, of useless talk. It's speech which cultivates gentleness and softness and harmony and unity. And it's very interesting to observe very carefully the effect on our minds of the speech that we use. When we're involved in a lot of wrong speech, as we usually are, there is a very great heaviness in the mind. 
And one experiment which you might undertake in order to cultivate this factor on the path up the mountain is for some period of time resolve not to talk about any other people. No gossip at all, whether good or bad. When I did that, I was amazed that 90% of what I said just fell away. (laughs) Not only did my mind become much more silent, there was a very great lightness which came, because knowingly or unknowingly, when we're talking about other people, there's some kind of apprehension or uneasiness that they're going to find out what we're saying. It's not a perfectly honest, open state of mind. And when we abstain from that kind of useless talk, it's as if that gray cloud which, which hovers over the mind is just dispelled. We relate to people in a much more open, honest, light way. Right speech is very important because we are continually reconditioning our minds by the kinds of speech we use. So we should cultivate a very strong degree of awareness about our words. I would strongly urge you to make that experiment and see for yourself just what it does to your mind, the the effect it has on your mind when you refrain from that kind of idle gossip. After the Buddha was enlightened, sometime after, he went back to his home and he met with his family and many of his family then entered the order of monks, one of whom was his son, who was born on the day that he gave up the household life. And the son became a novice in the order. And there are some discourses which are directed primarily uh, towards, towards his son, the Buddha instructing his son in the, in the path up the mountain. And one of the famous discourses has to do with right speech. And what the Buddha told his son was that we should never knowingly speak a lie, whether for our own advantage or the advantage of someone else. Truthfulness of speech is very, very important. And as we become more and more aware of what it is that we're saying, it becomes clear that there are many, there are many shades of untruthfulness which we indulge in. We should become very aware, very mindful of the words we use. It's a very important part of this, of this ascent to the peak of the mountain. Truthfulness, gentleness of words, words which cause, which cause peace and harmony between people. It puts us into a very nice space. Okay, right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action. 
And right action means action free from killing, from killing any other living being, any other sentient being. Action free from stealing, from taking what is not given. Action free from sexual misconduct, which is generally taken to mean adultery, or those kinds of action which cause harm and suffering and pain to other people. We should not be the cause of suffering in others in any way. It is essential to harmonize our actions, our bodily actions, with the Dharma, with the law. Because that is the only way to keep, to keep evolving on this path, to keep walking upwards. As an example of the kinds of misunderstanding of the importance of right action, is expressed very nicely in Mount Analog. It was the part of the book talking about the history of one of the guides, or one of the people uh, who, were, who were going up the mountain. And it seems that above a certain place on the mountain, it was forbidden to kill any being at all. Killing was forbidden above that place on the mountain. And it seems that this man had been climbing up the mountain and was, was going back down to the base camp. And on his way down, he was caught in a very great blizzard. And this blizzard lasted for three days. And for three days, he was forced to just make some kind of, of sleeping arrangement in the snow, no food, very, very extremely difficult conditions bordering on life and death. After three days, as the, as the blizzard stopped, he was very, very hungry. He was famished. And he saw a very old kind of rat come out of a little hole in the ground. And he thought, well, it's just an old rat, and, and I need the food to survive. So he killed the rat, and he ate it, and he went down the mountain. Many, many years or some time after that, he was called before the, the tribunal of guides, of other, of other beings on the mountain, to, to account for this action of killing the rat. And at the time, he thought it very inconsequential. It's just an old rat, and his survival might have depended upon it. It seems what had happened was that that rat was quite old and feeble himself. And what the rat fed on were all the diseased insects in the area. Right? He could not catch the healthy insects because he himself was, was an old rat. So he, he fed only on the diseased insects. When the rat was killed, there was no, no natural check on the disease in this whole insect population. So the disease spread out, wiping out this species of insects. It seems that the insects had played a very important part 
in fertilizing all the different flowers and plant growth on the side of the mountain. When the insects were no longer there, the fertilization of the plants was not taking place. So the plant growth all, all started to die. It seems that the plants had been holding the mountain in place, had been holding the dirt steady on the side of the mountain. When the plants were no longer there, there was a period of very great mountain slides, avalanches, right? Not only blocking the path for many people, but, but killing, killing different people who were trying to climb up the mountain. <coughs> All from killing the rat in a moment of non-mindfulness, unawareness of the results of our actions. Everything we do has a very rippling effect. We drop a little pebble in the water and the ripples go out and out and out. We have to be very careful of our actions. And a very easy, lucid guideline is to refrain from killing, to refrain from stealing, to refrain from sexual misconduct. That kind of conduct which causes harm or suffering to others. Right action is very important. Right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action. The fifth is right livelihood. Getting our worldly trip together in a harmonious way. And also the guideline is not engaging in any kind of livelihood which causes harm to others. And the traditional list of unwholesome occupations is dealing in firearms or weapons, in liquor or intoxicants which cause unwholesome states of mind to arise in people. We have a responsibility for what we're doing. Not to engage in, in livelihood which is involved in trickery or deceit or untruthfulness, Things like fishing or hunting, which involve the killing, the destruction of other living beings. We should purify our livelihood so that our actions are in harmony with the law, with the Dharma. So we are not creating more and more obstacles for ourselves on this path up the mountain. You know, the path is very clearly marked but it's a very steep and high mountain. We don't want to be crea creating more and more obstacles for ourselves. We want to be clearing the way before us. And this clearing of the way is this kind of understanding the law, understanding the Dharma and harmonizing with it. Right livelihood. The sixth factor is right effort. If an effort is not made, no one gets to the top of the mountain. In fact, no one even begins to take the first step. Effort is a very important factor. Nothing happens at all without making an effort. And on the spiritual path, what right effort means 
is that effort to overcome all unwholesome states of mind which may have arisen and to keep them from arising and to cultivate and maintain the wholesome states of mind. When greed, hatred, and delusion arise in the mind, we want to let go of them. We don't want to wallow in them, to make them stronger. We don't want to be feeding them. We want to be cultivating non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. That is the effort. And it is a mistake to think that these factors of mind, the unwholesome ones overcome and the wholesome ones developed, that it happens by itself. It does not. It will only happen if we make the effort. So to sit back and wait for some magic carpet to float us up to the top of this mountain, we may be waiting a long time. We have to walk ourselves. Really what right effort means is expressed in the seventh factor on the path, and that is right mindfulness. It is the effort to be mindful, to be aware. Mindfulness means noticing what is happening in the moment, not allowing the mind to forget what the present object is. To be wakeful, to be alert, attentive, receptive to what is happening moment to moment in our mind and body. That is the effort that is required, the effort to be mindful. Mindful of all the different elements of the body, elements of matter, all the different thoughts and emotions and ideas. Because mindfulness means being aware of the object without clinging, without condemning. It's very interesting about mindfulness. When I first went to practice in India, my teacher did not say anything about the moral precepts, about not killing or not stealing, or he didn't say anything about livelihood or the other factors on the path, or wisdom. All he did was give instructions for the development of mindfulness. If we are practicing mindfulness, the whole Eightfold Path is there. It is automatically that if we are mindful, we are in harmony. We are not doing or cultivating anything unwholesome. Because mindfulness means being aware, which is non-forgetting, non-delusion, without clinging, which is non-greed, without condemning, which is non-hatred. All through the power of mindfulness. The whole path, the whole Eightfold Path, all the factors of enlightenment are developed, are cultivated through the power of this mindfulness. It's at the very center of all spiritual practice. The last factor on the path 
is right concentration, which means the development of one-pointedness of mind. And concentration is like the, the strength to climb the mountain. We can be making the effort and we can be trying to be mindful. If, if our legs are not sufficiently strong to, to do the climb, it's going to be very difficult or impossible, which makes possible the development of all the other factors. A scattered mind, a mind that is flickering and wavering, stays on a very superficial level. We have to develop sufficient one-pointedness of mind so that it can penetrate, so that the mindfulness can be operative. The path is very clear. It's not, it's not a jumbled, murky maze that we have to wind our way through. It's all laid out with signposts all along the way. All we have to do is walk on it. And if we walk and we walk and we cultivate each of these factors both simultaneously and separately as the, as the situation arises, we'll find ourselves climbing higher and higher on the mountain. Many, many beings have realized enlightenment. Not only in the Buddhist time, but before that and all the way up. And in the present time, beings who walk on the path reach the top. It just requires a perseverance in the climb, right, not to give up. In Mount Analog, there are some notes at the end which are suggestions or advice to prospective mountain climbers. Keep your eye fixed on the path to the top. But don't forget to look right in front of you. The last step depends on the first. Don't think you're there just because you see the summit. Watch your footing. Be sure of the next step. step. But don't let that distract you from the highest goal. The first step depends on the last. Walking up this mountain within ourselves towards freedom, towards liberation, towards illumination of mind very much involves living in the moment, being fully aware of what's happening moment to moment to moment. But with that footing, with that grounding, we can be aware of what it is that we're, we're aspiring to. We can have the goal, the summit, in view, in mind. Being aware of the possibility of freedom is very much the cause of our beginning to walk.
there any questions? Are there degrees of enlightenment? There are stages of enlightenment. And what that means, there are, there are ten defilements of mind, which are called fetters or chains, which keep us bound to this wheel. Enlightenment means the experience of nirvana, right? the state beyond the mind-body process. The first glimpse of nirvana eliminates from the flow of consciousness three of those ten fetters. The most important being the belief in self or I. Because you've experienced the zero beyond it. Right? So from that point on, there is indubitable understanding that all of this mind-body process is empty of self. Wrong view has been eliminated from that first glimpse. <coughs> Still, there are many other unwholesome factors to be, to be worked on. There is still sense desire and still ill will, still desire to go to heaven and restlessness and sloth and all these, all these factors still latent in the mind. Each progressive... So then you walk the path again. You walk the entire path, and again there's a, an experience of nirvana or the state beyond. And the second time eliminates other fetters. These are the stages. The fourth, the fourth stage of enlightenment is when all the fetters have been eliminated. inability to develop these factors very much revolves about the view that there is an I, a self, in a certain state which is very far from that state. At every moment that you are aware, that you are mindful, the whole Eightfold Path is there. There's nothing to have to change or to, to struggle with. At every moment, we are, we are created anew, right? Every moment is a new person. Instant to instant to instant, mind and factors are arising and passing away. All we have to do is cultivate mindfulness, cultivate awareness. All the rest will follow, right? If we are aware of our speech, the very awareness is the purifying force. There's no need to struggle with all. I must purify myself simply by being mindful of what it is that we're doing in the moment. The mindfulness purifies, right? So there's no struggle, no tension, no 
forcing, no suppression, simply being aware of how we are unfolding. Okay? Uh, are these the main teachings of, of Buddha, would you say? I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Where did Buddhism come from? that is worth understanding, I think, is that the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. Right? That came later, very much later. And out of Buddhism came Mahayana and Vajrayana and Hinayana. That's that even much later than Buddhism. What the Buddha taught was the Dharma, which means the law. He taught how the mind is working, how the body is working. He did not teach anything he did not teach a set of beliefs or dogmas or anything that has to be accepted. He drew a map. And he said, here's the map. See if it corresponds to what's happening in yourself. Teachings, all of the teachings came out of his own experience of enlightenment. Right? He experienced very deeply within himself the Dharma, how things were working. Out of that experience, he had a very clear vision of, of the law, of the Dharma. And he was able to draw this map and act as a guide for many people who are on this climb up this inward mountain, right? The spiritual path. For some hundreds of years after his death, these teachings were passed on orally, you know, committed to memory. About 300 years afterwards, they were written down. They became the, uh, they became the, the oldest part of the Buddhist scriptures. In, in the development of historical Buddhism, then, then many, other, many other scriptures were evolved along the way, which were claimed to have come from the Buddha, and which may very well have. You know, I'm not passing judgment on that. But the, the test always should not be to accept anything except as it relates to what we are experiencing in our sense. I have a couple of questions. One is about giving. Um, giving and it seems at this point accepting something in return, anything, even a smile type thing, do you keep, would one keep on giving and giving and giving until that, and be aware of that giving until that, that acceptance or that that feedback was eventually gone. What, what's the definition of giving? If I had a long arm, I would hand you the book. <laughs> and then I, you know, and then you, how about like, like I would accept something in return, would that be truly giving? Accepting something? No, that, okay. You know, there are, and we're going to get into it more. We're going to elaborate different factors on the path. We are a succession of mind moments, okay? It's not one being who's giving. It's a, it's a flow of mind moments. In the act of giving, the factor which is most predominant is non-greed. Because greed means sticking, holding on, right? When you're giving, you're opening up, you're letting go, detachment. You can have a mind moment or, or many mind moments of giving, right? Depending upon the quality of mind, there can then be mind moments, oh, I gave now, and what am I going to get? You know, when does my karma come back to me? 
That's a different mind moment, and that no longer is the moment of giving. That's a moment of desire or clinging. So those moments are not so wholesome. The moment of giving is very wholesome, right? As we practice it, and giving can be practiced. It can be a quality of mind which is developed until it becomes so natural to us that it happens very spontaneously, right? Then it's very powerful. As we practice it, we get more and more into giving as just a natural expression of the Dharma without any thought at all about what I'm going to get back from it. But don't be discouraged because we're walking up the mountain, we're not at the top yet, right? We practice giving and then we're aware that the mind is going through some trip about, about expectation. Simply to be aware of that and through the awareness that will fall away. With uh, wherever I've been able to come to about what's helpful in my life, uh, it seems if one were to try to cultivate at least the first six of these, it's very easy, if not <coughs> nearly impossible, to avoid uh, stepping into some kind of striving to be other than who you are. And my impression of Buddhism or what I've taken out of it that I wanted to see in it because it seems to be helpful to me uh, was that you be who you are you just be aware of it like you said the right mindfulness and if you are being selfish greedy hatred etc etc you don't try to be other than that you just be aware of it with the possibility that something else opens up as you tune in on that but without the notion that uh, I'm doing this so that something else will open up. And also just in my own personal experience, if I, I have a sense that if I try to do those six things, I'm going to be either a complete phony or I'm going to become unreal to myself right. or a combination of both. What you, you have just expressed is exactly the reason that right understanding comes first on the list. Because, in fact, there is no I to be other than what is happening now. All that you said and the tension involved in that kind of striving revolves about the idea or concept that there's someone who's trying to be something else, someone else. And the understanding that all of these are impersonal factors. There is no one who is cultivating right speech and no one who is making an effort. It is merely a description of certain mental factors which have a certain function. The function being to harmonize. That should be the basic understanding involved in, in all the factors of the path, right? No one trying to do anything, just different wholesome factors unfolding. And they all unfold if, as you said, you are staying aware moment to moment, right?
Okay. I think I think owning is not such a, an appropriate concept. Acceptance. And the whole process of being mindful is exactly that. Not choosing, not selecting, not condemning. If there's anger or greed or desire or wrong speech happening, not condemning it, which is just another unwholesome process. Simply being aware, receptive very open to what's happening and the very awareness is the purifying process right self is a concept which means that it is not there whether we think it is or not what happens is that because moment to moment we identify with different aspects of the process in each moment that we identify the concept of self arises. It's not something that we have to destroy or get rid of or see through because it's not there. All we have to do is stop creating the concept moment to moment. And that comes from being mindful. Not clinging, not condemning, not identifying with the object. So moment to moment all the factors are unfolding free of the idea of self. It all comes back to mindfulness. Right, to awareness. When you are not identifying whatever it is that you're doing, whatever you're seeing back, then where comes the uh, the motivation to try to make it better? Motivation or is... Right. No, that's okay. Is... You, in the questions, we're sort of opening up a lot of the topics of discussion for the coming weeks. Motivation is a mental factor. The motivation itself is not I and not me and not mine and not self. It's merely a factor of mind, which in conjunction with a lot of other factors like wisdom and effort, understanding, mindfulness, so the motivation arises. But motivation is not I, and it's not self. It's just the evolving of that particular factor. But where does the factor come from, is what I'm saying, it if I'm uninvolved? If I'm, if I'm detached from what I'm doing, then why should I make any effort? If you're detached, if you are mindful, if you are mindful, you don't have to do anything else. Because the effort is to be mindful, that's all. Not the effort to change anything. The mindfulness itself is the cleansing process, right? If in the moment we are already aware and mindful, that's all. That's all that has to be done. Moment to moment, not clinging, not condemning, not identifying with it, right? Just letting the dharmas unfold. So when you're mindful, you're no longer creating karmas. There are three kinds of karma. There's unwholesome karma, which brings back pain and suffering, wholesome karma which brings back happiness, and karma which leads to freedom, which is the highest kind of happiness, right? Mindfulness is the creation of that kind of karma which leads to freedom. Um, if someone is engaged in unwholesome actions, they bring back uh, uh, you know, karma of suffering and pain on themselves. That's one thing that's been said a lot. But 
the, the doctrine of no, I find that sort of difficult to bring together with the doctrine of no self, because sort okay. of there's no self no self does not mean randomness there is a continuity of the of process in other words what you are now is completely different in mind and body from what you were 10 years ago but it has been conditioned by what you were then and every successive moment so what you are experiencing right now is in large part a result of all those kinds of actions you have undertaken. It's a continuity of process with no one behind it. It's merely a process unfolding. So what I do now is going to condition future stages. Exactly. 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 More correctly stated, what this process does now, okay? With right action, it is very important to understand that the karma accrued results not primarily from the action, but from the state of mind involved in it, okay? Killing, I would say, almost always, if not always, involves some kind of aversion towards the object, aversion or greed. Right? That's the unwholesome karma. Okay, so then you don't mean necessarily not killing, just... Well, you have to be a Buddha to have the possibility of... Well, you have to be very, very highly evolved to even have the possibility of killing without an unwholesome state of mind. Right? Right. The sentient beings. Well, Don Juan might have been able to do it. Right. But <laughs> <laughs> But he but he instructed like what um Carla Pastanata to kill too. Right. I am in zero position to judge Don Juan. You know. I have observed this state of mind in myself, and, and it's certainly in all the teachings, all the traditional teachings of the Buddha, non-killing, which you do not have to accept. You know, the, the acceptance should come from your own experience. If you observe yourself when you are killing something, you will see that it is a very dark state of mind. It, if you're very mindful, you know, sometimes because we're not aware, we do something very mechanically or out of some conditioning, and we're not really observant of the state of mind involved. If you're mindful, it will be self-regulating. You'll see that, that it's a lot of unwholesomeness involved. You're causing a lot of pain to other beings, right? <coughs> Sentient means feeling. Uh, 
which is a concomitant of consciousness. Talking about plants, with, okay. I can tell you how I understand it, which you can just listen, you know, and take what you like. All things have some vibration, right? There's some vibration, some energy vibration to all things, to the floor, to, to bricks, to stones. Plants have an even finer vibration because they're, they're living beings, right? It has been said that plants do not have consciousness. That is, consciousness means the knowing faculty, which is not to say that they do not respond to, to other vibrations. They have a very, a fairly evolved vibrational response. And I think a lot of the experiments done with that reveal that they do respond to the kind of vibrations that we put out. It does not necessarily follow that they have consciousness, right? That they have a knowing faculty. I don't know if you find that satisfactory or not. That it's exactly the ability to be aware of the object. I mean, we are knowing moment to moment, so, so just look within yourself to see what knowing means. What if, uh, like say, in my mind, plants have a knowing faculty. This is my conception. Right. Right right. So where would someone like me take this absolutely no killing? It is impossible to... Uh, be in a state of completely non-harming. Because every time you breathe, there are many, many organisms. You know. Everybody has to uh, harmonize with that right action on whatever level they can, right? Depending on each of our states of evolution and how we conceive of what not killing means. You don't have to, you know, struggle to pinpoint you know, or to, or to narrowly define non-killing. But you should, there should be a good understanding that we don't want to be cultivating states which cause harm to others. You know, and as much as possible, we should, we should bear that in mind. So, uh, if a big fish eats a little fish, is that killing? Or is it making a little fish into a part of a big fish? <laughs> it's both. The, the, the material process is in a constant state of transformation. There's definitely the, the little fish does not want to be eaten. I'm just wondering if killing is not a man-made concept, whereas we might have the other concept of needless disruption of a system. In other words, if I catch a fish, and eat it. I am in harmony with the nature of the universe. From your point of view, not from the fishes. Well, <laughs> no, from not my point of view. I think from nature's point of view. If I take that fish and throw it away, then I have done harm to that fish. I haven't 
raised it in its level of vibrations in the universe. The, the eating of the fish is not raising the fish's vibrations, because all you're eating is the corpse, right? The, the flow of consciousness at the time of death has already taken rebirth in, in another form. There's one, there's one cartoon I would like to share with you. Uh, there, were, there were two deer standing on a little hill, and there were hunters down below shooting at them. And the caption of the cartoon was one deer talking to the other deer. And it says, in reference to the hunters, why don't they thin their own goddamn herds? <laughs> I think that, that We just have to feel for ourselves what kinds of action involve most purity of mind. And what has been found by very many people is that when you are causing pain to other beings, it's not such a wholesome state. So within that general framework, everybody can find their own to imply that I disagree with the Eightfold Path, uh, but with the interpretation and the application of it, I do have arguments. You know, the whole, the whole conceptual structure in itself is completely irrelevant. You can believe it or not believe it. It always comes back to experiencing for ourselves our own states of mind involved in each activity. Right? And then, it, then the, whole, the whole path up the mountain will become clear. In other words, observe what happens to your mind in all these different states. When you're being, when you're being aware of the entire process involved. Right? There's one famous discourse of the Buddha where people came and asked him, you know, everybody's coming along and giving us different speeches about what we should do and what we shouldn't do and how to go about spiritual work. He said, don't believe anything. Don't believe it because I say it or because another teacher says it or because your parents say it or because it's in the scriptures or the books. See for yourself what develops wholesome states of mind and what develops unwholesome states of mind. And based on that self-experience, then the path will become clear. Right? All of this is merely, it's a general guideline or a map to somewhat structure the investigation of our own minds. So I find the notion of karma very powerful in one lifetime. If I heard you right, you linked it to more than one lifetime, in other words, reincarnation, <coughs> especially in terms of linking these concepts to our own experience. How does reincarnation come into one's own experience? Okay. It can, as with all the rest, it's nothing one needs, believe, or not believe. Okay? That's as a preface. The understanding of karma and the idea of rebirth can happen on different levels. First, as the meditation experience gets deeper, you experience the law of cause and effect 
quite clearly moment to moment. Right? You see that there's no involvement, but rather the flow of impersonal thoughting. From that experience of cause and effect working, it becomes somewhat easier to extrapolate it. Right? And to see how causes in this moment create effects in the next, how causes at the moment of death create a rebirth consciousness. That's still on the, on the intellectual level, but there's some kind of intuitive feel which might come, right, from the experience of cause and effect here and now. There are beings who, through very powerful samadhi, have developed the ability to experience, to, to look back and see past lives. Not only the Buddha and, and many beings in his time, but, but today. There are powerful yogis who have that psychic power. One can believe it or not believe it or be open. You know, I think Coleridge or Wordsworth coined the phrase suspension of disbelief. I think that's a very open <coughs> attitude of mind to have. Not to necessarily accept it and not to necessarily reject it, which is another kind of clinging to opinion. But just, okay, if it's, if it's true, it's true, and if it's not, it's not, you know to be open to the possibility. It doesn't matter whether one believes it or not has nothing to do with the reaching the top of the mountain. <coughs> Freedom, liberation or enlightenment is to be, can be experienced in this lifetime. It's, it's an experience open to us if we continue walking up the path. Are you sure? I don't know, have you those of you who've gone fishing have observed the activities of the fish on the hook as it's out of the water. I would not call it bliss. <laughs> you know, all beings have, all beings want happiness. And, and to continue their, their own flow. I mean, from our point of view, it's, it's just like that cartoon, you know. We may be in harmony with a greater law, supposedly. From the point of view of the fish being killed, I'm not sure he'd agree. <laughs> Does that relate at all to what you were saying? Yeah, it does not matter whether the fish be conscious of death or if there's just a fear reaction. The consciousness is there. It may not be... As you observe... Uh, as we observe our, our own minds in the process of meditation, you will see very many states of mind which are non-conceptual. Because thoughts are not in the mind does not mean that awareness is not there. The fish may not be thinking about, you know, may not be having these words in the mind, but the, the knowing faculty, the awareness of pain, of dying, that awareness is there. The process of consciousness is going on. I wanted to say something about what 
you're saying is that, like, when I think of animals feeding other animals, it's my dog, you know, kills groundhogs out of our garden. I'm really glad he does. But it's, <laughs> it's like it's, it's an instinct thing for him, but it's also like for for me, it's not an instinct thing for an animal because I have the intellect to distinguish, you know, what's happening. Well, with my dog, is on, you know, it seems to me that my dog is evolving, but he's not. He doesn't have the intellectual ability that I have. So for to justify a, a, a fish eating another fish, it might be done purely, but if I was eating the fish, it couldn't be done in the same way. Okay, I think that what you're saying is true. There is, a, there is another aspect to it. Generally, we in the West have a very romantic attitude towards animals and their state of mind. Just because the whole the whole cultural role of of having pets and, and animals in very comfortable surroundings. That's a very culturally conditioned attitude. There are four Okay, this also is what has been taught and you can just listen, right? Suspend disbelief, if you wish. The process of this cycle of rebirth involves very many different planes of existence, right? The human plane is one of them. The animal is another. There are four lower planes of existence and some number of higher planes, celestial or Brahma worlds. And it all is just a evolution of process, right? Certain states of mind manifest in certain forms. The animal world is one of the lower worlds of existence in that the primary factor of mind generally involved in an animal rebirth is delusion. Right? Not that, not that sharp clarity or light of mind. It has been said that once one has taken birth in the lower worlds, it is very difficult to again attain a higher rebirth. Not impossible. Like, it's not a permanent damnation. You know, it's a process evolving, but precisely because it is very difficult to make good karma, in these lower worlds. So it's difficult to, to materialize a good karma and the dying moment which would result in a good rebirth. The three unwholesome roots are greed, hatred, and delusion. Right? Delusion is not an excuse for unwholesome action. It is itself an unwholesome state of mind. At every moment that we are unmindful, we are cultivating ignorance. Right? Animals are generally not mindful. That is, there's a very strong identifying process with what's going on on a very instinctual level. Right? Because an animal eats another animal, and there's, there may not be a thought or concept about hating the other animal or, or a thought about greed for it, but on that instinct level, there is very strong identification with the whole process. Right? Not conceptual, just 
It's very instinctual. And that's just the creation of more and more mind moments of unwholesome karma because of that delusion of mind. Does anybody relate to any of that? There is, because we have all been everything. It is said that there is no beginning to this, to this wheel of samsara. And in that unthinkable expanse of time, we have accumulated vast quantities of both wholesome and unwholesome karma. And it will happen at one time or another for every being that just at the moment of death, some good karma or other will materialize. Right? But it is very rare and it takes a long time. You know, it's interesting. When Ramdas came to India, and he came to the place that I was studying, and he stayed there for a couple of months doing this meditation. We had a lot of talk about, about the Dharma, about some of the theory involved. And he saw this one book which really laid this whole trip out, you know, about the different planes of existence and about the suffering involved. And his first reaction was, oh, just another, just another trip, you know, another, another damnation trip going on. Right? His first reaction was really very negative to the whole business. In talking about it, that's one way of, of relating to it, which is very conditioned by our, by our upbringing and about our freedom from, from having trips laid on us. Right? Another way is to look at it with the possibility that this may be the way things are. Right? Not, not that all of this is... In the sitting meditation today, we're going to add another object of mindfulness to the breathing. And that is, when you're watching rising, falling, or in and out, Sometimes between the out-breath and the next in-breath, there is a gap, there is a moment's pause. Sometimes, not all the time. When there is that gap or pause between the out-breath and the next in-breath, or between the falling and the next rising, the object of awareness then should be the whole sitting position of the body. So it's rising, falling, sitting. And just the awareness of the position the body is in. You put that awareness of sitting posture in that gap between the out-breath and the next in-breath, between the falling and the next rising. So it should be very rhythmical and not forced. It should be rising, falling, sitting. Rising, falling, sitting. Using the mental labels, the mental word, only as an aid to keep the mind on the object. Right? Not forcing it, not not imbalanced, very easy, very rhythmic, sitting back, and just observing the, the breath and the sitting posture in the gap, when there is one. If there is no gap, no need to do it. The mind should not be struggling, should not be forcing itself to stay on the object. There should be no strain and no tension. It's very much that attitude of mind which is sitting back and observing. 
Okay, very attentive, very alert, but not clutching at the object. Just very relaxed, very easy, very rhythmic, very mindful, very attentive. In, out, sitting, arising, falling, sitting. Okay, we'll sit for about half an hour. <coughs>